Hi, I'm Sam Rocky. Welcome to this episode in our Ghost Light series of podcasts where we explore how leaders can build human-shaped organizations by learning from the humanities, that repository of all that is most human. Each time we talk to guests who consider leadership from an angle rather than head-on, looking through the lens of philosophy, literature, art, history, psychology, for new insights, new language, and new approaches. In this episode, I'm talking to Sally Angel. Sally is the creative director of Angelica Films. She's a BAFTA and Emmy award-winning film producer. She's a psychotherapist, a creative storyteller, and a journalist. Welcome to the show, Sally. Hi, Sam. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to be here. Sally, we met a number of years ago, and what fascinated me at that time when I met you and we, we had a number of conversations about the work that you do is that you span the world of documentary movie making and journalism, which really aims to give an unbiased, perhaps a more factual account of universal themes. But you also focus on the deeply personal work of psychotherapeutic coaching and systemic constellations. How do you see these two really vastly different ways of looking at the world connect in the work that you do? Well, it's funny because I don't see them as being super different in some respects because um, the way I approach documentary making is about values and similar values to psychotherapy. In a way, they're a kind of yin-yang combination and they both depend on an ability to really listen and listen to people's stories and listen to what's going on in the world. And I guess also to tell a truth rather than the truth. And documentary making is very much about communicating to lots and lots of people, millions of people sometimes, about ideas and stories that they didn't necessarily know they were interested in. And a level of intimacy that needs to grow from a fundamental basis of truth and connection. Well, you know, you describe telling stories that people might not have recognized that they have, and that creates a sort of real need to build intimacy. You know, what is your process for selecting stories, the stories that need to be told? How do you go about finding the most powerful stories to tell? It's not straightforward. I don't think there's a kind of cookie cutter answer to that. And quite often, I think stories find you. You know, there's a way in which you're tuned in as a documentary maker to things that are going on in the world. You have a natural curiosity about the world you live in and also the people that you connect with. If you don't have that fundamental aspect of curiosity and also backed up solidly by compassion, you can't really be aware or able to tell stories in a way that will connect with people. So the first thing I think is to be open and responsive and to feel excited and want to share something. So your antenna is always tuned into trends, what's going on in the world. But often what happens is something comes and takes you by surprise, something that you weren't expecting. And you need to know how to be responsive to that. So firstly, I think it's about tuning in. It's about listening. And it's about being willing to respond. You can't create stories that have resonance in a vacuum. So, of course, you're constantly tuning into things that are going on in the world. But fundamentally, you start somewhere because the story's grabbed you by the back of the neck and it's giving you a bit of a kicking somewhere. And then you have to listen and figure out how you're going to tell it. To give you an example, a concrete example, the Holocaust documentary that I made, Night Will Fall, came about 
accidentally because I was giving a talk at the Imperial War Museum to their student filmmakers. And the curator at the time was of that um, student film festival was just beginning to digitize the film that had been shot when the Allies liberated the concentration camps in 1945. As soon as he said it, I knew that I wanted to tell that story. I didn't know what the story would be. I didn't know how it would go. I had no sense of all of that. And then it took a good year to get the financing in place, to persuade the broadcasters, the distributors, all of that side of things, that this was a story to be told. I wanted to tell the story of the liberation, that moment of release from the camps and in first-hand testimony so that only the people who'd been there or had been filmed were part of the story. Then there was that other side of the process, which was to give them the safety and the structure to know that they were in a safe place to tell their story, that they could trust us. And quite often we heard it was the first time they'd told their stories because they had had too much trauma and uh, even they hadn't spoken to their children about it. So there was a lot of courage and confidence that they required and generosity from their part, I guess, in order to do that. That kind of telling of that story came about in a very surprising way. But then once we had got all the structures in place, it was very much about giving people the space, the confidence and the time to tell their stories and know that they were going to be witnessed in the right kind of a way, because that's really important. Can you talk a little bit about two things that, that sort of sparked curiosity, um, and you use that word as well, is that only people who were there were in you felt very strongly that those were the people who would tell the story you know looking for people's own experience i mean what sparked that specifically for me it was this first-hand experience of people who had been there either filming it liberating the camp or having been liberated that was the essence of what i wanted to do and to focus on the moment of liberation what's that feel like and what's the impact of it all also what's the impact of on the camera people and the liberators of bearing witness to atrocity and who's there for them. So all this area, I guess, that then weaves into intergenerational post-traumatic stress and how that gets passed down and gets spoken about or not spoken about and how that absence of story within a family system gets to play out in the family system as well. So it's quite an in-depth thing. And we we had lots of family members saying, my father never spoke about this at all. And so it, it was a very delicate place to go. Seeing this incredible archive, I mean, understanding that the liberation had been filmed. There were hours of footage that had been used in documentaries, but out of context. So every every frame you've ever seen in any documentary about the Holocaust has probably come from this footage that was collated and shot and scripted really brilliantly by Sidney Bernstein, Alfred Hitchcock and Richard Crossman at the time. An incredible team and it was stopped by the British government. So part one for me was actually this recognition that this film, this original film, had a proper story narrative to it. It was telling a story and Bernstein wanted it to be evidence for all mankind. And I think that's the power of documentary making. You know, the most solid documentary making tells the truth in a way that you cannot flinch, you cannot turn away from it, and it resonates emotionally. And this was like the most important documentary probably I've ever seen. But I'd only ever seen it cut up and used to illustrate other 
Holocaust documentaries. So I wanted to be true to that original film. And secondly, the other part of this for me was finding a new way to breathe fresh life into the story of the Holocaust for another generation, because it's a very difficult subject to bring a fresh narrative to or fresh insights and new truths to for obvious reasons. But it's a very important sort of crossover in this first question that you ask about documentary and psychotherapy. It's understanding that every story that you tell for an audience that you're never going to really meet is a personal story that's very important for the person that's choosing to share that story with you. Sally, we're going through such a hugely collective experience as humanity at the moment. Um, It's a shared experience on so many levels, but in other ways, um, each person is having to engage with the crisis, the impact that it has in a very personal way. How, How do you think this will play out in terms of the stories that we'll be telling in the future or the stories that people want to listen to in the future? I'm not sure how it's going to turn out. Um, I guess, you know, I've heard that saying, you know, we're all in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. But I think stories create kind of shared lifeboats that we can climb into for a bit and feel connected and a sense of communality. So I think that's a really important element. I guess the other thing that I'm I'm really aware of is that change as consumers is uh, like the way we watch stuff changes. Technology always leads social change, I think. And what we have is a kind of new form of storytelling and collecting and sharing stories, sometimes good, sometimes bad, you know, in terms of social media amplifying a story and sharing it. And sometimes that gets us locked into echo chambers and trolling. But more often than not, we're seeing during this period anyway, positive sharing, people reaching out, people connecting, people supporting the NHS, for example, taking action around Black Lives Matter, that kind of thing. And I think there's something that we yearn for in story, which is about the epic and the intimate all at the same time. I don't know, I think the right stories will emerge right now. Um, I don't know what they're going to look like. And in short term, you know, immediately coming out of lockdown, people are going to want to have uplifting, entertaining, warm stories. But you know, who knows longer term how that will play out. You know, the kind of stories I tell are for an audience and for a consumer. They're a consumer product in the end. I mean, it's a terrible way of putting it. But, you know, if you want to make a really good film, you have to sell it. You have to get an audience that wants to watch it. It's not just something that you do for your own enjoyment. We know that there's a kind of appetite from the broadcasters at the moment for things that are going to be more uplifting, I guess, after lockdown. But you're guided to some extent by that, but it's not the only thing. So in terms of those kind of stories that we're going to be hearing and telling, they will be different in in that sense. But I think there is a need for the truth to be told, you know, one way or another, or a truth to be told. There are many, many truths. And I think it's acknowledging that that's possible. But I think the technology thing is very important too. So for example, even this podcast enables a multiplicity of viewpoints to be shared by a particular set of people. And it could go viral, it could share more broadly and have an impact. And, you know, not many years ago, you would not have had a platform yourself to put this out. There's um, a new wave of energy, I suppose, a new wave of people. The gatekeepers have shrunk now. The bar is a lot lower for more stories to emerge, more voices to be heard. 
so it's a kind of democratizing, I guess, of the media. It's also, so for me, I guess one of the, the issues is, is around the quality of the storytelling that's out there. W.H. Auden said, poetry makes nothing happen. Is it the same for film? You know, the quality, if you think of yourself as a film producer of very powerful um, and intimate portrayals of people's lives, do you see yourself as a social activist? Is it important that the quality of the films that you're putting out kind of drive a, a much more um, deliberate agenda? So I think it's a really complicated question to answer. I'd prefer to see myself as an emotional activist than a social activist. Um, but every film that you make goes on a journey, right? You start off thinking, right, I'm going to make a film about ghost hunters or whatever you want to make your film about. And uh, what ends up happening is is the film evolves. It doesn't stop just because you've written the script. At least in the documentary world, um, it has its own way of being. And part of your art or your craft as a filmmaker is to know when to get yourself out of the way and when to kind of hold the boundaries of the narrative and the story. But the main thing that's really difficult about making a film, as I suppose with any creative enterprise, is that when you get to the last day in the edit and you've finished the film, or at least you've stopped working on the film, because I don't think you ever feel that your film is finished. Mm. You've just got to the end of the budget, the schedule, the deadline has hit, the broadcaster needs it, you know, it's due for release. You kind of stop. You don't ever feel it's completely finished. Mm. But at that point, the film is no longer yours. It goes out into the world and it will be what it will be. It'll be received in the way that it's received, either as the masterpiece that you hope it will be or the apology of an item that you fear it might be. And, you know, then it belongs to the public. It belongs to the world. It's not yours anymore in some strange way. Um, and of course, there are all these metrics about the viewers, how, what, how big the audience was, how much money it took at the box office, all those things. They give you their guidance. They kind of tell you something. But ultimately, any film that you make will touch someone in a way that you'll never know, potentially. And it's different to the internet because when you're looking for stuff on the web, you kind of know what you're looking for. Yeah. You go searching. All the web finds you. You know, it'll use your history and you'll get a targeted thing. But film and television can still surprise and delight you, even shock you emotionally and give you meaning all at the same time. It's all wrapped up. And I guess what I, just to come back to a specific thing as well, which is when you sit in the cinema with a film that you've made and you do a Q&A, as I've done, the same people in the same audience can ask entirely different questions and have seen very, very different things in the film, you know. So when we were doing the Q&A around Night Will Fall, in the same Q&A, a woman said, there's not enough in this film about the Jews. And somebody two rows away from her raised their hand later and said, why is this film all about the Jews? And, you know, there is a kind of thing you don't know how people are going to receive your movie. I'm just reflecting on a documentary that you made, which I absolutely loved, and so many people did, which was In Nothing Like a Dame, you know, which was a global hit on TV and at the box office, um, and just the joy of seeing four wonderful women talking about their lives, really, and touching on everything from husbands to death to experiences when they were young. And I, I you know, I'm just really curious about this quality of conversation, free-flowing conversation, and why it works. 
because it felt an unstructured in some senses, but obviously there was a structure underneath it. But this joyful conversation between these four women, what's going on there, Sally? Well, I'm glad it felt structured underneath it because it was a, it was a, Roger Michelle, who was the director and I, and uh, Anthony Wall, who was one of the other executive producers for the BBC. We kind of viewed it as a bit of a fishing trip because we really didn't know whether it would work. Uh, so I was hoping that through the process of sharing memories in an unmediated way, we would have something that was up close and very personal and intimate. And one of the criteria that I kind of gave to our production team was if you could Google the answer, it wasn't kind of what we were after. So because obviously if you have very famous people, there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of anecdotes that get told and there's a lot of information. So what was incredible was um, having Roger, who's a really established director, who was able to make all of them feel safe. We had to create a very safe container for them to feel able to speak freely and to bounce off each other. And one of the kind of things that was really important about that was that they were really friends. You know, they, they'd known each other for a lifetime. They'd gone through very similar experiences. And it was a film about friendship. And it was about knowing each other quite intimately and being able to, for us as the audience, to sit at the table with them and look at their reaction shots. So not just Judy Dench telling an anecdote, but Maggie Smith's jaw dropping when she was telling it. That's what we did that was quite refreshing. And the way we approached it was to make sure they felt safe, that they could trust us, that their reputations would be enhanced rather than damaged by anything that we did. Um, we worked very collaboratively with them and we let them talk and we didn't stop them. We had four cameras, one on each of them, and we just followed it. And we, we, we worked to what I call dames days. Given they were all of a certain age, uh, they couldn't get up at eight in the morning and work till late at night. So we started at 11, we finished at one, they had a leisurely lunch, we picked up at four, and then we finished at six. So we shot it over two days, we shot it in real time, and we didn't alter anything in terms of the structure. So often when you make a documentary, you chop up the sequencing in which you've, you've done something. So... The, the thing that they talk about three hours in can sometimes come as the very first thing that you see. We didn't do that. We followed this completely naturally. So it was kind of anthropological in that respect. It was wonderful to watch. And I mean, of course, what you're describing is is years and years of friendship have created this trust between four people that we then have the joy of watching. It's very difficult to build trust quickly. There probably is no secret source. But I mean, are there any lessons from your experience on any of the qualities that help build this trust between yourself and and your and people in your documentaries it's about listening and really listening to people in a deep way i guess that's also one of those overlaps with psychotherapy you know certainly as filmmakers you know most of most of what people see is what we put out there it's a kind of um, transmit thing as opposed to a receiving thing. And all the kind of really important work happens in the way that you listen. And you also have to really respect the generosity of people that are trusting their lives and reputations to you for however long it is. And you have to work collaboratively. I think also you have to maintain a kind of neutral stance. 
you know, in the way the Buddhists say about being committed but not attached to the outcome. I think you go into something with a view. As I say, the kind of film goes on a journey always. But you have to go with how they feel. So, for example, even with the Danes, you know, when they felt tired, even though we had it on our filming schedule, we were filming till this time, they felt tired, we stopped. Someone needed a rest, we let them go and rest, and then two people came and talked instead. But I don't know, you know, trust... Trust is a very difficult thing to conjure. Um, it's very helpful, I think, to have made films that people can look at and see the caliber and the quality of your work. But every single time you start to try and build a relationship with someone, to ask them for access, to ask them if they'll tell their story, you start afresh. And you can't go, oh yeah, that, that worked for this company or this person. It's really about honoring that person, that institution. And I mean, even like when we did Inside the American Embassy, for, which we made for Channel 4, when we started that, Obama was in power. And then by the time we started filming, there'd been a change in the administration. It was Donald Trump. And we knew that regardless of any political feeling around any of it, we had to remain objective and tell the story of the people there serving their country. So the diplomats are neutral. And we, we maintain that neutrality throughout. Any temptation to colour a story or put your, in the way I make films anyway, your views or your, not your values necessarily, but your opinions into it is not such a healthy thing to do. It colours the truth of what the subjects that you're, you're covering What's what's the reality? What's the authentic thing there that, that you're trying to show? And if you're too fixed in that idea, you're never going to show that authentically. And I think, Sally, as you're speaking, I'm thinking of many of our listeners are leaders of organizations who have, I guess, recognized the power and importance of storytelling. Um, the dimension that you're bringing in, of course, is that the sort of neutrality and hearing the truth through the person firsthand is such an important part of uh, presenting story. Do you have any thoughts to share with leaders who, who are using stories as ways of conveying incredibly important messages in their organizations or getting others to tell stories in the organizations? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that's brilliant. I know, um, I think Jeff Bezos has banned PowerPoint now and he only uses stories as well. But my thoughts are that story is probably the best way to get people's attention. And I suppose if you're running a company, you need to know your brand values, just as we do. When we go into an organization, we don't deviate from our brand values in terms of the way we tell stories, you know. I think it's a, it, it's not so different, you know. It's, it's trusting the power of story. It's knowing your audience or your market. It's knowing your organization, your institution, and not trying to be something you're, you're not. I think consumers sniff out what's authentic and what's inauthentic pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, that's wonderful to have this idea of, you know, stories having to reflect back values, but at the same time be hugely authentic. And I think leaders who are able to bring those two values or quality to storytelling really are able to use stories in the most powerful way. Again, sort of borrowing from the way we do stuff particularly with the American Embassy series, we, we, we built it on a matrix of trust. And I think this also relates perhaps to what you're asking too. So, you know, it was any, any number of ways we could have made a film that was 
either damaging to the American embassy or a propaganda piece, mm. right? You have to look at the kind of interested stakeholders and partners in any storytelling process that you do. Your audience, the subject, you as the kind of producer of that. And, and make sure that you can keep all of those elements of trust going and not compromise them. Well, I do love your idea of a matrix of trust and, you know, thinking about how you actually need to be quite deliberate and be very clear about what those drivers are in story, that it's actually, it's something incredibly precious for people to share their stories. But equally, one has to honor, as you say, the person who's telling the story. Sally, I mean, there's so many more questions I'd love to ask you. And unfortunately, we've run out of time. But any last thoughts about your experience that you think would be helpful for leaders to know? Um, the only thing I'd end with is, is, a, is a Sufi saying, which is, uh, trust in God, but tether your camels. But I think in terms of filmmaking, you have to do it the other way around. First of all, you tether your camels, and then you trust in God. That is fantastic. Thank you so much, Sally. Thank you, Sam. You've been listening to Ghost Lights, a podcast by Thompson Harrison. Thompson Harrison is a leadership and organization development consulting business where we bring experience, expertise, and a uniquely creative approach to offer highly specialized leadership and organization development consultancy. Thompson Harrison is skilled at designing successful ways for leaders to embrace new ideas and remain dynamic. We work with senior leaders and their teams to transform their organizations in response to a fluid context and a changing set of stakeholder expectations. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.